Portal to Ascension, yes. I mean, it would take 10 years to really digest all the information we heard here today. And tomorrow we have an incredible day as well. So we're not going to go too late, but this is a real great chance to get the all-stars of our team here, the, the people who've really devoted their lives to studying the past and, and try and make sense of it so we can navigate a new future. I think that's, that's one of the reasons we look at the past. So why don't we just go down the line for like a kind of opening statement about why we do have to look at the past. Let's start with Linda Moulton. How, Linda, why are people obsessed with the past and what benefit do we gain today by looking at these ancient sites? Well, the first thing that comes to mind to me is that uh, I have figured that I have interviewed 30 or, or three, uh, interviewed 3,000 people since 1979, September, when I started on a strange harvest about animal mutilations, and that led to extraterrestrial interaction with our planet for reasons that were mysterious. And in the 3,000 interviews that I have done, there are patterns of information, and many people in the abduction syndrome will say that they are drawn to a word like O-S-I-R-I-S, or that they have had some kind of a vivid, uh, almost like a memory, but as a dream, that they were in Egypt, where they were in some other part of the earth, and that goes to the whole issue of past lives, reincarnation, and the recycling of souls. And I think that in all the work I have done, when I signed a contract with Home Box Office back in March of 1983, to do an hour special for HBO called, it was in the contract, UFOs, the ET Factor, and that the evolution from starting out in that particular documentary and finding myself blocked by the United States government in going in as many directions as I could try, that from animal mutilations to UFOs, the ET factor, I realized that I was increasingly on paths that the government of the United States did not want anybody to know anything about. And that became, for me, one of the most important parts of the last 43 years of my struggle to understand what is the truth. Because what is it that the government is so afraid of us knowing from simply having straightforward, presented facts about which star in our neck of the woods in the Milky Way galaxy or beyond is the one responsible for the Anunnaki, the Egyptian. The assumption that I'm making is that there have been many different experimentations with genetic manipulation on this planet. I have read documents that said these extraterrestrial biological entities have manipulated DNA in already evolving primates to create Homo sapien. And that's a direct quote. It's been burned into my mind since uh, March, April 1983. But what do we get from the ancient civilization part? 
that the ancient civilizations are extraterrestrial manipulations on this planet. And we happen to be a current one, and the fact that the government does not want us to know this is, to me, almost becoming quaint. Do you know what I mean by that? How strange that we should still be on a planet in which the Department of Defense in the United States of America continues to have policies of denial about billions of facts that they know are true. So, looking back into the ancient history, you're looking back into what was a modern presence of extraterrestrials on this planet. Right. And how's that affecting us, our future? Well, we'll come back to that, but yes. Well, they are somehow still interacting with us, but they're doing it also in a secret way as the government, except for abductions, animal mutilations, and all of these phenomena that are on one level disturbing, while there's other information about tall whites and Nordics as being collaborative and trying to help. So it is confusing whether you're going back into Egyptian history or Mesopotamia or Gobekli Tepe. Can we, can we, we don't have, the audience? We don't have clarity. Let's stick to the audience. Yeah, talk to Anyway, um, but we'll follow up on that, but I think we're still interacting with ancient history by what you know, Robert Grant, Robert Shaw, other people have said. So we'll come back to those. Thanks, Linda. Yeah. It's, it's an ongoing education. So, Michael Cremo, you've been devoting your life to the study of ancient history, and what relevance does it have for us today, 21st century people? Well, I think it has a lot to do with heritage. From the past, we have taken certain things, whether it's from Egypt or any other part of the world, it's our heritage and it helps define who we are. And we have to think about what we're going to leave to future generations. In other words, today we are determining what people will regard as their heritage in the future. So right now we're even if we're talking about things from the past, we're really talking about the future. So I started looking into the past in about 1986. And I began looking for the answer to the question, how long have we been here? And what I found when I looked into the original scientific literature, not what you see in the textbooks today that are used to teach people in the school, but when I looked into the original scientific reports, I found abundant evidence that humans like us have been present for vast periods of time on this earth. And that says something about our origins, because now we're told we're simply machines made of molecules in competition with each other for survival. But the modern scientific picture that tells us that has 
nothing to say about consciousness. And consciousness is something we all experience. And that consciousness is, now we're told it's a byproduct of matter. If you organize matter in a sufficiently complex way in the brain, it'll generate consciousness. So we're told as conscious, intelligent, personal beings, we've evolved up from matter. I don't think that's the case. I think we're originally beings of pure consciousness that have devolved into the world of, of matter. So our, I mean, I was really amazed. I wrote a book called Forbidden Archaeology, which is about stones and bones. And I was really surprised. I started getting invitations to speak at gatherings like this. Mm-hmm. And UFO, UFO, gatherings. I was wondering, what's that got to do with archaeology? <laughs> well, that's the question, yeah. But the, the link is hidden knowledge, knowledge filtration, whether it's in the field of UFOs or paranormal research or others, there's a, a filtering going on. Yeah. And I think the reason is that if if people through their monopoly in the education system are able to define our identity as purely material beings, then naturally our goals, our values, our objectives in life will be consistent with that. And that means we work hard to produce and consume more and more material things, and that generates wealth that goes into certain pockets who have power in the 1%. And they are trying to make the heritage of this planet purely material. Mm. And and that marginalizes people like you who are sitting in this room. You're considered to be the outliers, the marginal people. You're not in control of the whole society. And there is an extraterrestrial element to it. I think there are hundreds of thousands of human-like species scattered throughout the cosmos. And many scientists are beginning to think like that now. So the heritage I would like to leave is a heritage that leads to a consciousness-based picture of reality where we solve our material needs, we satisfy our material needs in the most simple, natural, fair, and efficient way possible with justice for all, and put most of our human energy into developing the resource of consciousness. And I think that's why there's so much resistance to this sort of thing today. I agree, I totally agree. I think most of the people on the panel here agree, maybe most of the people in the audience, that consciousness is primary and that if we have a legacy that's just filled with non-consciousness, then that's their story, the narrative of who we are. And and what you said is that we need to become um, more of a voice of consciousness in, in the world community. 
Um, one thing I was just thinking as you were talking is that at some point we're going to be considered the ancient civilization. That's a little scary, isn't it? When they dig up New York City and it's like all that. It's like what? So anyway, but Robert, you put so much time and work and effort in trying to um, contemporize the past and bring it relevant. But what can we take away from what you're saying about Egypt and the past and the the hieroglyphs and, and in your interpretation, geometry? Well, first of all, I think that uh, history has a tendency to repeat itself. And I believe everything that you know has been said here, um, I think the first mistake we make is believing that the universe is material. Yeah. I don't believe that it is. It's mental. It's the core principle of mentalism that starts to unlock a lot of the mystery that we all experience. And I really like the quote from Max Planck that was already referenced by Dr. Schock. Um, there is no matter as such, right? All we can conceive is that there is an intelligent mind behind all that is. And when I start thinking about it, it's easy to devolve and start feeling like the world is happening to me, that I'm trapped in some metatronic distortion, right, or a daisy of death. Um, and I turn to a very ancient Chinese proverb, which is, the man who blames others has a long way to go on his journey. The man who blames himself is halfway there, and the man who blames no one has already arrived. I'm going to remember that next time. That also remind me of that quote by George Bernard Shaw who said, what we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. Well, that's the thing. The, I feel like this all the time. The more I learn, I feel like the less I actually know. And, you know, what if we're in a spiritual life simulation game? And if we are, then you could start to think about, okay, if you're gonna create these things where there would be these separations like octaves of music that would be separations of dimensional frames of perception. And we probably wouldn't choose the easiest path. Now, we don't experience the world as it is, we experience it as we are. We all experience the world around us with observation bias. And so when I start thinking about myself, and I have some friends who are highly competitive, and I say to them all the time, look, if you had a choice and you could come to Earth, would you choose the easy path? If you're a mountain climber, would you want to climb you know, the hill behind your house, or are you going to want to climb Mount Everest? Are you going to want to learn through the suffering and through the challenge? Because maybe we come here to learn through the opposite experience of what we came here to learn. If I'm here to learn unconditional love, Maybe the only way I can really understand the unconditionality of love is to experience over and over and over again conditional love. And maybe if I'm here to learn forgiveness, I actually need some of my friends in this other realm to come here and do me wrong so that I can have people to forgive. Okay. That, that explains a lot. Thank you. <laughs> I think you're right. I think probably that's... The karmic I believe that we create, it's a, not a matrix, it's a creatrix. And we have a lot more power over it than we know, and we're now 
on the verge of opening up to that higher understanding and awareness, and that is the ascension. That is the portal to ascension. Wow. Okay, we're going to be women, this woman sitting at the other end of the dais here. Well, thank you. I couldn't agree more with all the people that have just talked, especially Linda. And Alan and I have been recently talking, I said, you know, forget completely the whole idea of, we'll say, you know, evolution as Charles Darwin and even beyond that has said. I mean, we definitely have come, and even giraffes, I often use the idea of the giraffe. Do you really think his head got to be taller because he kept reaching higher and higher trees? I mean, come on, give me a break. So, I mean, it definitely has a higher source of energy, whether it's physical being, so to speak, dropping us off or dropping the animals off. I mean, we had Noah's Ark. Obviously, they were taken, preserved for a while, and then brought back, or something happened because of floods. Anyway, that, you know, there's definitely a cosmic dimension to life as we know it. In fact, we're sitting right now in an area, well, I'm going to say San Diego, um, where there was mastodon bones. How many people know that? The mastodon bones, almost 130,000 years old, and they were found when they were digging up um, a freeway or making a way for a freeway, and they saw that those mastodon bones were placed by intelligent beings. Now, it could have been Neanderthal or who else was living here at that time, but I'm just saying there's no way you can deny, even right here in San Diego, that there wasn't intelligent beings living here 130,000 years ago. And there's an equivalent thing going on in the area of the Savannah in South Carolina as well. So there's a lot, and that's just in this country, right? And then you can go down, we've gone down to, uh, to places in South America. There's Pedro Ferrada, where they've done acid-based Technologies, and they've seen 50,000 years ago, and also in, in um, another place in Chile as well, 50,000 years ago, where there was actually definitely civilization. So we really do go back. But at, with that said, there are cycles, and I think the cycles is extremely important, especially because we're going into the, what's the 2025 going on? You didn't say it, but that's the next height of the solar cycle. It's coming very, very soon. Something to watch. Uh, Australia actually has been counting how many solar flares we've had every month, and it's really... Most astronomers have been instructed not to say too much about 2025. Yeah. Anyway, and he, he didn't say anything about it, but he does allude to it. Anyway, lots to look forward to. I'll pass it on. Go ahead. So, JJ, I have a few questions, but first of all, you've said in your book, He's a Vena, that the sun is a variable star. Meaning what? Because I think it fits in with what Robert Schock said. Well, it means that it's not as in the, any type of s stability or the paradigm that we've had until recent times with now the knowledge of corona mass ejections suggests that we're in for some roller coaster rides. Yes. But going back to your initial question, you know, archaeology presents really time capsules of the universe encoded in the human imagination and human artifacts. And I've had the privilege to work with some of the best scientists in the world at Stanford Research Institute. Many of you don't know this, but the top scientists at SRI in Northern California years ago did the studies uh, of the Sphinx, found that the sides of the walls of the Great Pyramid were divided. There's eight uh, sides to the pyramid rather than four. And we did a lot of paraphysical remote viewing of underground chambers in, in the Great Pyramid. This 
is in my book, Co-Mind Dynamics in Space and Time, written with Desiree in the late Elizabeth Rauscher, who wrote 450 scientific papers and would have got the Nobel Prize had she lived uh, in the recent awardings of the paraphysical and the paranormal. Bottom line here is we're in for a quantum change and everything is going to change quickly and I honor my colleague Robert Schock. We did a paper together years ago and we've, uh, as independent scientists, have disagreed with the establishment. But in short, uh, I did an uh, a study of the mu music of the Great Pyramid. As you can see by this one picture, Desiree can hold it up. This is the King's Chamber, no, the Grand Gallery. Grand Gallery and the Great Pyramid at a certain frequency between 420 and 432, it turns into a golden light through a standing columnar wave. That's, emitted. That's an actual study. And we discovered when we were there back in the 1990s that even the Egyptian guards began to dance with us on top of the Great Pyramid. They were so excited. Here's another picture, a very rare picture you'll find that the Egyptian guards will actually dance with you because they feel the most music coming up from the vortex of the pyramid itself. So there's a whole musical strategy, the music keys of the Great Pyramid, as um, Mr. Grant suggested, is a key really to something colossal in scope. I, I disagree with some of the interpretations of Christian graffiti, and I remember back in the 1960s, it was when I was there, the Egyptians were cleaning the in, in, interior of the Great Pyramid because of graffiti the, the century before. So we have a lot of cleanup to do. So don't be misled by external features on the walls because every cotton-picking group in the Middle East wants to put their sign of Horatio Elger on the walls. Even Khufu, right? But anyway, verbum sapientis sapiens, which means in Latin, let what the wise speak. Okay. Well, well, thank you, JJ, Dr. Hurtock, thank you for your comment. Um, so, um, Robert Schock, you know, your work is really foundational to the whole field. Uh, yeah, stand up because you're not tall enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, like Ro Robert Grant, other people said, we, the ancients have left, left us a monument, a record of, in stone, and in music, and you're saying also a warning, perhaps, to the future, so um, do we have anything we can work, I mean, what do we do with that? Do we bury our cities like Dobeki Tepe? I mean, what do you suggest? Yeah, yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a lot of things that go through my head. Right. Now, I'm standing up, I'll tell you why I'm standing up, not because of you, okay. because I was hidden behind the podium and I couldn't see half the audience. Uh, so I want to speak to the entire audience, that's all. <laughs> I'm, yeah. Um, so first off, and this sort of ties in with your question, but I want to make a comment sure. because I was asked by Robert Grant as I was watching, was I surprised? And I shook my head no, but I want you to understand what I, why I was shaking no. Nothing when it comes to Egypt and the ancients surprises me now. <laughs> Almost nothing. And I think this ties in with your question. What... Why is it so important? Because I'm convinced that they had understanding, they had insights, they had knowledge that we have lost, that we have to try to regain. So that's why I was shaking my head no. Not because I was already knew it, but because no, I wasn't surprised. I've, I've learned that, um, I'll put it bluntly, uh, 
they knew things, and I'm convinced of this, that we don't know or we're just discovering, and I think they knew things probably and had insights that we still don't have. So we still have a lot to learn from them. And I want to disagree with some of my academic colleagues, and I am, you know, I'm really not someone who's trying to put other groups or other people down. But I know Egyptologists, I've dealt with Egyptologists, and some people even call me an Egyptologist because I've studied Egypt so much, and so, you know, it's a loose term, but I'm a geologist, I'm a geophysicist, that's what my PhD is in. And I've known Egyptologists who've built their career studying ancient dynastic Egyptians and all the little details and whatnot, and when you talk to them, their attitude basically is that these were really stupid, crude, primitive people who happened to do some nice art, happened to build a nice pyramid here or their temple there, but they didn't really know anything profound. You see my point? I think they really did know something profound, and that ties in with the work of Schwader de Lubitsch, who um, you know, I've looked at quite a bit because my late colleague, John Anthony West, um, really began with Schwader de Lubitsch and his detailed mathematical analysis of the Temple of Luxor, if people know that, he, went, he called the Temple of Man. And just to clarify, he also believed there was a Temple of Woman, so he was using that as a man, woman, etc. The concept of sacred science, things like Robert Grant has been pursuing, uh, and others with the Great Pyramid, and the detailed mathematical analysis, the detailed astronomical analysis and archaeoastronomy, and I think of the work Robert Bouval, my colleague, has done, et cetera, et cetera. We could just name so much there. So there's so many things I think that we have to learn from them, and we should learn from them, but why? Not just because it's sort of interesting, not just because it expands our knowledge base a little bit, but I am of the opinion that they had insights into things we are barely touching the surface of. One I want to mention, it's already been mentioned a little bit, the cycles. Cycles at all different levels. Unfortunately, we're, well, let me put it this way. We're in the United States, and there are cycles in the United States. I think of political cycles. Four-year political cycles. I mean, that's nothing. I'm a geologist. I, I was trained to think in terms of hundreds of millions of years, billions of years, um, tens of thousands of years. Uh, you know, five-year plan? Five years is nothing when it comes to, you know, bigger picture. And I am convinced now that the ancients and I'll just use that as a general term because we could talk about the ancients and the very ancients, so I'm really talking about both, and the different cycles of civilization, but they were thinking in terms of cycles that could span thousands of years and tens of thousands of years. I think they, I'm convinced, I didn't get into it in my talk because the you know, I could have talked a lot longer, but there's evidence, for instance, at Quebec Tepe that they knew about the processional cycle, which is approximately a 26,000-year cycle. We heard about that some already. So they were aware of bigger picture, if I could put it that way, um, aspects. And I also agree that, um, with some of the other comments, that they probably were not necessarily so materialistic in that sense. 
um, but more uh, spiritual, conscious, that was important to them. I have to admit that um, I was trained in part and sort of, you know, there was one aspect of archaeology when I was an undergraduate, graduate student. Oh, you know, it's basically materialistic. Everything had to be materialistic. So I'll give you a quick example that we couldn't have civilization until you had the material goods for civilization, which means you had to have agriculture and domestication and you had to have counting so that you got people making money so that they could um, you know, store goods and then they could have a king and he could pay artisans. Do you see my point? You know, very sort of, uh, I, oh, I'll put it this way, Marxist point of view, materialistic Marxist point of view. And I think that misses a huge aspect of the ancients and spirituality and deeper meaning and consciousness that they were very, very involved in. So there's all those types of aspects. The concept that there was a civilization before our cycle of civilization. So I want to make a comment lastly on that. I talked in my talk, my presentation about what I call earlier cycle of civilization, I actually call it the Urian cycle of civilization, Ur being um, Indo-European for proto or beginning or, or you know, early version um, of something. And that ended, I'm convinced, as I point out, 9700 BCE or thereabouts at the end of the last ice age. Why? Because the cycle of the sun and solar activity and uh, as, as JJ Hertog has already you know, mentioned that the sun is not as stable as we have tended to believe for the last few hundred years and this is really a modern concept that's just starting to take hold in the scientific community that's a star like a lot of other stars I think the ancients, based on the evidence, knew this and understood this and certainly understood it from a practical point of view because they experienced it. And they tried to leave, perhaps, whether intentionally or unintentionally or somewhere in between, we can argue, but information about this that we can, in a practical sense, benefit from. So even when there's people, not necessarily people in this audience, that couldn't care less about learning about ancient history or anything else, they do care that their electronics are going to go poof when the next you know major solar outburst is going to occur, and all the I'm convinced all the geological astrophysical um, evidence indicates that this could be right around the corner. And so I'm not a fear monger. I'm not trying to sell you prepping tools or something, um, but I think that there are very 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 practical things we can learn from the ancients and studying from the age studying from the ancients, and as Alan said, we're someday going to be the ancients, and do we want them to look back and say that our total society and civilization was devastated, even though we had the warning signs, even though we were starting to learn from the previous cycle how we might be able to survive it, um, or do we want to just go in a poof and be gone? And we... One last comment, I'm, and I don't mean to hog the mic. Um, but we, I want, I want to stress this for two seconds. We, I'm speaking on microphone. Things can be transmitted around the world. Satellites, electronics, all the iPhones I see in the audience, etc. Those are so, so, so vulnerable to what I'm talking about, solar outbursts. Even minor solar flares and that type of thing. 
If we have anything close to what happened at the end of the last ice age, we're gone. If we have anything close to the Charlemagne event, which was much smaller in the eighth century of the Common Era, you know, just uh, 1200 some years ago, our modern society, our grid system will come down, etc. And where do we get, one last comment, where do we get so much of our energy um, in the modern world in certain countries? Yeah, there's all kinds of energy sources, but one I'm thinking of is nuclear power plants. They will be devastated. And, you know, so we're just exacerbating the issues. So anyway, enough. I don't mean to be depressing, but you asked the question. What do we learn? Could I add? Could I add what I have read in some documents that were speculation, but have also talked with people who have had some passing information in jobs that they've had in Intel, that the ancients, at least some of them, were full-blood extraterrestrials based on this planet and not just the surface deserts, but inside mountains, bases inside, that the length of existence or coexistence of other beings on this planet goes back a very long way. This current model is only 45,000 years old in the crossfade with Neanderthalensis. And then you add to that the briefing that was given to Ronald Reagan, March 6th to 8th, 1981. I've had two people who I have had work with in Washington, D.C. for about 20 years and both have been able to confirm that Ronald Reagan went to Camp David March 6th to 8th, 1981. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about the Serpo material, which in my work, it's been way more supported than contradicted. And everybody should read the Serpo material. Yep. And if the briefing is as it is stated in the circle material. Then Ronald Reagan was introduced to five different extraterrestrial civilizations described as such, given names by um, a man who was working in a very large biochemistry department. And the names included at the start Eben was extraterrestrial biological entity, and those were the ones with the pear-shaped heads, not the pointed chins, that we would say were gray with large black slanted eyes. Very specifically, the Ebens were identified for Ronald Reagan as being a kind of ally in the United States and that there had been a treaty of some sort. And then the next was Arcoloid, and it was spelled A-R-C-H-Q-U-L-O-I-D, and the definition, as it was explained to President Reagan, newly elected, is that the Arcoloids were a genetic experiment by the Ebens, and that the Ebens had made the Arcoloids, which had very large 
noses, somewhat bullet-shaped heads that they put ropey headdresses around. All of this was described. And what automatically then do you see? Anunnaki, Assyrian. You go back into the history of our planet and you add the Ronald Reagan presidential briefing and you realize that what Casey, the new head of the CIA, was trying to do was to give a broad landscape to the new president of the United States about the fact that extraterrestrials are the ancient civilizations on this planet, that extraterrestrials are the producers and creators of the pyramids, that we are babies in relationship to the list of extraterrestrial created species of which the Ebens were number one, the Archaloids, the Quadloids, four fingers, and they were supposed to be a combination of something like lizard and possibly insect. Uh, there was, um, the fifth one was the Trotoloid. And that was the first in public description, March 6 to 8, 1981, of an insect civilization that is a tremendous threat to this planet. They want Earth and they don't want humans on it. Those sound like very dramatic words. I've had more than one discussion with people currently who are, they say that the Trinoloids are a major threat and without the tall whites and the Nordics, we would have been perhaps annihilated a long time ago. Now, why I told, said all of that is those five in the circle and being introduced to Reagan, yeah. what was being re introduced to Reagan is we humans really are babies on this planet in comparison to civilizations from other places in the Milky Way galaxy and beyond. That are still in control here. That are still interacting right. and that we must become educated about what is the truth in the history of this planet that is extraterrestrial first and we come later in what would be genetic experimentation, the manipulation of DNA in already evolving primates to create Neanderthal, Denisovan, and Homsi. I think JJ has a response. Yeah, Desiree has a response yeah. to that, and then we'll continue this. So I like to try to pull both sides of the uh, panel together. So uh, someone said earlier, and they're right, Dr. Ortec also says it in the keys, that this planet has, in the recent times, been in a state of quarantine. Now we all know what that means, of course, but it's really quarantined from these extraterrestrials that had, in the past, as Linda had just said, had free reign over this planet. You go back to Genesis chapter 6, if anyone's biblically orientated, or the ancient, ancient book of Enoch. And they said that the people on this planet had relations with the sons of God, and those are not gods, but the sons of God, and they created giants. They created uh, beings that were mis 
we'll say, destroying the earth because of who they were. And so the book of Enoch actually says there was a flood, which is very interesting, to go back into what Linda's trying to say, the, the certain kind of position of the genetic code that needed to continue on this planet. So this is biblical history, actually, ancient history in terms of what we've been told, but no one takes it seriously. But maybe there is, that previous civilizations on this planet had been misused, much of what Linda just said, and that now we are in a chance of, because we are who we need to be to make a difference. And we believe, from a higher standpoint, that we actually do have a certain light energy code structure within us, a higher consciousness within us. And that allows us to achieve greater levels of consciousness that we have been told. In fact, in a certain sense, we've been dumbed down, not only by governments, in a certain sense, who are not telling us the real truth, not only by archaeologists and those who control the sacred sites of the planet who have not let us continue on, but also by certain consciousness levels surrounding this planet that have tried to keep us somewhat um, without a higher knowledge. So this is the age of synthesis. And to bring these two disciplines together, archaeology, and we will call space science or off-planetary cosmology, we just simply have to look at the facts. Before Giza, Giza was called Akira, which means Mars or the spacious one. I was one of the first to release documents from NASA archives of the pyramids on Mars that have a unique relationship mythologically and physically with the pyramids in Egypt. So there's a whole new realm of Egyptology and all planetary sciences that will be released. I believe with the coming disclosures from General Chaim Ashet from Israel, who actually wrote a book dealing with secret negotiations alleged between the American scientists and the Israeli scientists and the cosmic others. Whether this is for real or not has to be determined by the experts. But nonetheless, Egypt is an archive not only of human history, but I believe also as a capstone of knowledge of the higher dimensional worlds. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting that here we have, we're talking about ancient civilizations, but we keep coming back to extraterrestrials. It's, it's like we sort of think we have two topics, but they're really the same. It's really a, a whole kind of unification from the past into the future because we are going to be visited. We are being visited, and maybe some of that um, old knowledge has been left in stone and music and lineages. So, um, Michael Primo, do you want to address that? Uh, uh, beings that left the past and are, their connection to us now and was it there a message in the past for us? Yeah, I, I think uh, people tend to want simple explanations. Yeah, I do. Either a simple, <laughs> simple evolutionary account, a simple extraterrestrial account, or a simple religious creation account. I think all of those three things are involved, but in a very complex tapestry. I think there have been universal cosmic wars where uh, you could say the darker forces who want to control and dominate everything have conquered the universe, including the Earth. But there's also an element of uh, some cosmic conscious being 
who is basically motivated in a good way that balances things out eventually. And there is a kind of evolution that takes place, but it's more an evolution of consciousness than that. And this is reflected in these ancient cultures. If you look you know, back a couple thousand years, most of the civilizations on Earth, if you look at their art, their temple carvings, and their literature, they were in regular contact with extraterrestrial beings. So I think that's part of the story, a big part of it. And some of those extraterrestrial beings do not have friendly intentions. But uh, I, I don't think we should be a victim of cosmic paranoia. Okay. Well, we have the possibility of a great future. I mean, I mean, Robert Grant, you just showed us how the ancients left a code in stone for a possible awakening. That's what I got from you. And it's still there. And so there are good beings that have, from maybe they were aliens. What's your opinion about the alien Egyptian cosmic? Um, I can only speak to my own personal experience. I had an experience, two experiences. One, when I was 11 years old, I lived in this uh, forest called Rendlesham. Uh, really? In 1980, and day after Christmas, and then the, the day after, two days after that, I had an experience, and I never really talked much about it. Um, I remember I was digging a, a trench in my backyard for my father, and, uh, and I, I was, like, incredibly focused on getting this done. I don't know why, but it was like a 50-foot-long trench, and it was raining, uh, earlier that night and I went out just to make sure that it wasn't all muddy because I'd spent the whole day digging this trench. Now England is not the worst weather at that time of year because you know it's kind of crappy all year. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went out there late at night and, um, and I had an experience and I saw because we were butted up against right up against that, that forest and I saw lights and I remember telling my parents about I saw something back in the forest. So that was my first kind of experience and I didn't really remember it that well. Did you ever my talk father was in the Air Force and um, he was involved in the whole... Rendlesham Park. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, um, and so it was right up against uh, Brentwater uh, Air Force Base. But then my next experience was in 2017 and I went to Egypt for the first time and I was asked by Nassim Hermain to give a presentation to about 200 people who were into math and physics. And I presented math as a language. Some of the people here in the room were there that day. And I was supposed to give a presentation I thought it was going to be kind of boring to talk about math. And um, I speak eight languages fluently and I learned a method to learn language that, that then I applied that same method to mathematics. And it was novel. I, I figured out how to learn languages fluently within about three months. And I mean like Korean and Japanese and Chinese, tough, tough languages for English speakers to learn. And so I applied that same principle and I presented my findings of that, that in short, the numbers are like nouns in this language. Um, the mathematical constants are the verbs of the language. Applying an ing is like 
implying an incomplete action or applying a gerund uh, to a noun that then makes it into a verb, and then uh, learning the conjugation, conjugation is critically important, and then circles um, that overlap and intersect form all of the sentences of this language that then form the syntax of geometry. And I presented this to 200 people there, and I was stunned at the end of the presentation because about half the room was crying. After four hours of a math lecture, that was something I didn't expect. May, I thought maybe they'd be crying, but for a different reason. Um, and that, that night, uh, we laid out, after we went to the King's Chamber, we had all three pyramids open for us. And I was laying out on the, um, the rock, you know, outside the Giza you know, complex, just right in front of the Great Pyramid, and we were looking up at the stars, and we noticed that there are about 75 ships above the Giza Plateau. At least. Yeah, Adam was there. And we all saw it. And then that night, um, they were like doing formations. And then that night, I was visited by Arcturians. Mm. Did they implant some other code? Like by the way, they love math. They do. Arcturians <laughs> love math. They're like big time. They're like spiritual mathematicians, you could almost say. Um, uh, you know, they call themselves the, 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 the Jedi, right? Jedi, Shaddai, same type of thing. Well, were you upgraded, you feel, because, and, and your work in Egypt affected by the... Very much so, very much so. And then they told me that there were several hundred people that came down about, you know, 13,000 years ago. Um, what our reckoning of time is, is not what it actually is. What do you mean? The time not only cycles, but has a looping aspect to mm -hmm. it. Um, that it's like when you fire a photon into a torus, into its edge, it will actually eventually loop back on itself like a boomerang. And that what we consider as our distant future might actually also be considered our distant past. Mm -hmm. So time being a torus, then our aspect of what we think of as time and the cyclicality of it. Sometimes what we are looking at in the historical references that we hear about from Rudolf Steiner um, might actually be not only the reference to the past, but actually what we're going to be experiencing in the future. You know, I'm getting a sort of time distortion seriously because, you know, we're talking about the ancient past and yet we're talking about the ET future and I feel like I'm really being stretched into a different way of conceptualizing time and space. Well, that's, that's what it means to enter into a higher dimension, fifth dimension. We'll start seeing that time itself is not what we thought, but that the pyramids themselves were built by a group of, uh, there, there were the local people there as well, Atlanteans, Thoth, Ledit, um, Enoch, Thoth, Metatron, uh, Osiris, uh, uh, all of them could be considered sort of synonymous. Mm. Different aspects, different incarnations of the same energetic frequency. But that the Arcturians uh, played a central role in the actual architecture mm. of that effort and that Thoth had actually been an Arcturian before that. Linda, yeah. yeah, it is fascinating that Benji in Melbourne, Australia uh, was presented this concept in his mind when he was in communication with the tall light that time, as we assume that time moves like an arrow, always going forward and straight. But in fact, the tall white showed him 
that it is more like a boomerang, exactly as you said, and that this would also explain things go in circles and cycles, and uh, Benji and I were talking about something that comes up and has with uh, an aerospace engineer I've talked with about this, that the tall whites, in order to solve problems, they have the facility of being able to have a problem in front of them mentally. And how they do this, I cannot explain, but the description has been repeated by enough people that I think this is true. The tall whites will take a problem and they will project it in a stream, a time stream, to the future. How far they go is probably determined by some mathematical thing that they do. But then they bring whatever they find in the future and they go back equally past the problem in the past. And that they can go past and future more than once moving and then they come to the present and they have the answer for the problem. And, yeah, like that. Yeah. and I think that that is an insight into the, the difference between the advanced civilizations that probably have been the ones hybridizing and manipulating DNA on this planet for a very long time. What are their true agendas is the big unanswered question. And, but how they relate to time, as an aero engineer said, when I work with a tall white shoulder to shoulder at a big aerospace company in the United States, he said, you realize that they have the facility, as that one quote today, of something, a human that would have five Cray supercomputers for a brain. And that their analysis is always going to multiple points in time. And that is a key to how they interact with this uh, whole universe. That, well, that, that's, well, that reminds me as you, was talk, you were talking that everyone here on the panel, and probably a lot of us, are discoverers of new truth. You know, Robert Grant and Mike Kramer and you, and the Hurtocks, it's like suddenly you come upon something new, and it's like, well, I was going to go to Robert Chalk because you, you discovered a whole new field of geoarchaeology, but I'm interested in your personal point of view. When you made these discoveries about the Giza Plateau and water weathering and the ancient past and where you bring together with the, the solar flares, did you feel as if they, the past was talking to you directly and, and away from your academic kind of mindset? It's like, oh my God, I'm discovering something that no one has seen before. I mean, that's kind of exciting. Yeah, it is kind of exciting. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I would agree with you to a certain extent that I do feel that way, but um, my basic, um, and it's, how do I want to say this, it's not always been an easy path in academia and to go against the grain, that type of thing. So, yes, it's very exciting for me on the one hand, but there have been many cases, and I'll be very honest, where I've wanted to walk away from it and take an easier path. And I would remember, especially early on, when I was starting to get involved with the Sphinx and all that quote, quote crazy stuff, unquote, uh, I had uh, many uh, more senior academics counsel me and say, well, why are you doing this? You've got your own specialty, you've got your own field, you could be 
you know, you could just do the classic standard role of making a few little contributions yeah. in science and my field geology specifically. I was, um, uh, uh, you know, trained an expert in certain uh, uh, groups of geology, certain fields in geology, one of them being Eocene rocks in the Eocene period, which may or um, well, Eocene, technically, but the Eocene, which may not mean a lot to many What's people here. What's the word you saying there? What? What word is Eocene? Eocene. Which Eocene, which is a period, um, the height of the Eocene was maybe 45 million years ago. So it's a period of time in geology, and I knew my fossils from that period left and right, so to speak, et cetera, et cetera. I could have had nice projects working on fossils from that time, which all of 10 people would read every paper I wrote. Discoveries, your discoveries. Yeah, I mean, that's the yeah, 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 that's what I'm getting to. So, so you know, I could, I could have made my name, my career, and been promoted in academia, working on this small, safe field, but instead I got involved in all these controversies, which is high risk, and this is where I'm coming to. A uh, high risk, because if you're wrong, then you're the total laughingstock. If you're right, they try to go after you for a while, but hopefully eventually you'll be vindicated, and then, you know, it was all worthwhile. So I... Thank you. Um, so hopefully I'm feeling now maybe I'm being vindicated a little yes. bit. Uh, thank you. Uh, so that's very exciting. So it's in a way, not to belabor your question, but in a way going through this path, I, for many years, it's not like I look and say, oh, I'm making this great discovery, this is wonderful. No, I was worried that I was wrong, number one, because so many people were telling me I'm wrong. Uh, in academia, and even though I felt I was right and I have to follow the evidence where it leads, even if it goes against the grain of the conventional academics, there wasn't a whole lot of solace in uh, emotional sense because I was being so attacked, beaten, et cetera, et cetera, that I, it's only recently I've had sort of time to reflect on what you're saying. It's what I'm trying to say. So now I reflect back 30 years ago, and I guess I'm glad I did it and stuck oh, well, with it. We're glad you did it, you know. Thank you. Yeah. I just want to say one thing yeah. that John West used to call those academics quackademics. Yeah. <laughs> quackademics, yeah. all of it. The government policy of denial. It's because reality has been classified since at least World War II. Yes, really. And before, that is what we are up against. That's Classified why we're revolutionaries. Reality. That's why I talked to Dr. J.J. Hertog, whose book, Giza Industrial Complex, is about the actual power that they had on the Giza Plateau and throughout Egypt. If you go to the, is it Dendura? There's the ancient light bulb there, so because there's no smoke markings in the, in any of these old king, um, chambers, the pyramids. And oh, and it was more than that. It was the finding of the saltwater battery. Yeah, talk but, about that. Well, some of you know of the, the late great Dr. Patrick Flanagan. He said the evidence of the saltwater battery mentioned or you mastered by the ancients. Excuse me ancient Egyptians, is the energetic Rosetta Stone that brings many of the missing pieces of Egypt together. So, so we've been able to find 
the use of the hydro water hydraulics underneath the Giza Plateau. We've worked with energy alternatives. We've been able to explain this to the Egyptian government and quietly to other governments, small governments, that the Egyptian model is one of uh, survival, economic prosperity, and great education connecting Earth with the stars. Well, it also shows that we have things we can discover from the ancients, like, you know, batteries that just require fresh water and salt water. But Supposedly there's a labyrinth... Supposedly there's a labyrinth uh, that they've been looking for just south of the Giza Plateau, and it had 3,000 rooms in three levels. And the more we looked at that, the more it seemed it was a type of like, almost like hydrogen energy battery system. And uh, almost all the, um, the pyramids actually have some connection to the Nile. There's over almost 200 pyramids, but at least some really significant ones along the Nile. And uh, I, I mentioned, uh, I think it was last night, about uh, we're with the shore expedition that discovered the tomb of Osiris, which is 100 feet down. We do believe that uh, they were storing, they were making and storing not only gases, but chemicals uh, from their technology. And it's very simple. Uh, high school t students could do this and create things like the Dendera light bulb. Especially with Egyptian linen. This is their book here, the Giza Industrial Complex, their latest book. But um, let me just, we'll, we'll wrap up. It's kind of been a long day, but it's just such an interesting you know, topic. And we really have the secrets to the past right here on this panel. So um, I just wanted to ask you, Robert Grant. Um, you know, um, Schock, Robert Schock said maybe that it was graffiti from the past when you talked about it. Well, can you... Oh, JJ, someone said, yeah, JJ Hertzog said, maybe what you were tracing wasn't really from the original Egyptian, and also the Alpha and Omega may have been from a later date. How do you answer that? Well, first of all, I remember when I first saw the Alpha Omega, uh, the first thing that I brought Muhammad over, and I said, Muhammad, uh, what's up with this? So there's an Alpha Omega on the rim of the sarcophagus. I said, have you seen this before? He goes, did you make that? <laughs> yeah, I, I just chipped it out. It's, uh, it's dolerite, okay? This is rose granite, it's 55% quartz crystal. Try to chip something into a piece of quartz. Good luck with that. Um, not so easy. Secondly, it was exactly 5.6 inches, 5.605 inches, which when you square 5.605, it's 31.4159262535. That's pi times 10. And the room itself is 31.4159262535 meters as its perimeter, precisely. Um, the number of times the sarcophagus fits in the king's chamber is precisely 137 and a half times. The, the omega, it is. Yeah, absolutely. number, It absolutely is. And in physics, it's also very important. Oh, it's 137 and a half is 137 and a half point five, you know, 137.5 09876 is is 432 divided by pi. And that happens to be the golden angle. And it's also related directly to radians. One radian is 57.29599 degrees. And it fits, a radian fits 2.4 times exactly into 137.50987. Now, why is any of this important? Well, the number of times a sarcophagus fits in the king's chamber is exactly that number. It's, ex 
137, which is also related to, now when you take the space out of the center, it's 137.036 times. That is the fine structure constant. Fine structure constant is the electron coupling constant. For those of you that like physics, in the room you'll recognize that because it's the exact threshold energy required to have an electron either decide, well not decide if it's conscious, maybe it is conscious, the double slip phenomenon would say that it is, but either it is going to emit a photon or it's going to jump to a higher valence shell and absorb it. That threshold is a mirror of light and dark. And that mirror of light and dark is what Richard Feynman referred to as we don't know how God pushed his pencil, but we know he pushed his pencil on this somehow. And, and it's the most mysterious number there is. Um, if you look at Yahweh, it could also be seen as pi times seven and pi to the seventh power. So this is the, the shape of the letters of yod heh vav -He. Now that also would turn out to be pi times seven is 22, pi to the seventh power is 3,020. That's the exact perimeter and feet of the Great Pyramid. And when you put those on top of each other, 22 over 3,020 equals one over 137. So maybe it's all coincidence. I don't know, I like math. And probabilistically it says to me it's not likely. And I would also say then that the, that the petroglyphs that we find on the walls, I don't know when they were made. I'm not trying to make a claim that I do know when they were made. But what I can say is this, is that they are etched with very, very fine etching. We not only found the same type of etching in Giza, we found it in Saqqara, we found it in the Valley of the Kings. Every one of the sarcophagi, and we also found it at the Assyrian. The oldest places in Egypt are the Assyrian, the Saqqara, and the Giza Plateau, in my opinion. This idea that the Step Pyramid was the oldest pyramid by Josephus, I believe it totally incorrect and false. Just look at it, it's entirely asymmetrical. You have much larger stones on the Giza Plateau. There are nine pyramids that have these kind of stones across Egypt. And they make literally the shape of Orion across Egypt. Now, what this says to me, and I look back in history, in Epic of Gilgamesh, as well as what we think of as the Bible, is not really Christian. I could even make an argument that it's not really Judeo-Christian. It's something that's a cross between the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's certainly not the Geb Nud story of creation. Now, is this something that Makari was defaced later on with this very high precision etch that somehow, in the case of the Alpha Omega, matched precisely the meaning of Apis Bull and Hathor, which the Apis is the representation of Osiris, the great bull of the West? I don't know. It just seems very unlikely to me. And when I look at it, I believe that, you know, it'd be very unlikely that they would carve on the wall Satet, which is Artemis. You know, we can go back and look at the Sumerian gods, the seven gods in the, in the Sumerian pantheon, then going to the nine gods of the Egyptian pantheon, and the twelve gods of the Greek pantheon, and the Roman pantheon. They all have relationship to each other. And these stories tend to travel through time. Now maybe they're on a cycle. Maybe what we consider as the past is the future. What I do know is the more I learn, the less I actually know. Well, we're just going back to tie it all together, and it's interesting that the Keys of Enoch, as well as Linda and all of us, and many of the other speakers today, talk about the significance of Orion. And which is uh, the star shaft, as far as we're concerned, from the King's Chamber points to Orion. It was known that 
the Osiris was connected with Orion. This is an ancient text. And also, if you go down to the Queen's Chamber, there seems to be an alignment as well with Sirius. And if you continue those upward, you don't see it in the pyramid itself, but it's there as the Sirius, Orion, and the Pleiades connection. So there is definitely a connection with the stars to the Great Pyramid, to, of course, as we've just heard, the alignments of all the things and the positions on the earth of the pyramid, definitely a sacred temple, a center, I believe, of all the 12 vortices that are existing around the planet that are being opened and activated and starting to be understood today. So the Great Pyramid is the Bible in stone, so you find all of the mythological archetypes and etchings there. And I went to Egypt to study the Coptic language as a young scholar to translate the Nakamani text, which I did 52 of the 54 manuscripts. And what was interesting, the Coptic period was 600 years. They had excellent calligraphers, mathematicians that could easily have done the detailed etchings that the later Egyptian authorities have erased. And again, it's interesting in, in, in Robert's presentation, which I, I liked, the first part mathematically I liked, but I take issue with the calligraphy because I've seen other situations in other parts of the world. Yeah. Anyway, well, this is what the, the, the two hands of God are also the two hands that wash and clean the walls. Well, we have seen the Alpha and Omega on the top of the sarcophagi. Uh, that's there, and we do believe that actually Egypt was Christian for several hundreds of years, um, we'll say. So that was maybe a good time when instead of blowing up the Sphinx, which they wanted to do recently, right? Uh, maybe the Christians just put an Alpha and Omega sign on there with the signs of Christ. Okay, so thank you. So to wrap up, I'm just going to one last question because we're, oh, maybe after we can take, because it's kind of like, but, um, you know, we're all here because we want to know. We're here at this weekend. There is some kind of portal to Ascension. There's some kind of transformation. How best, Linda, can we go into the future as real human beings to create a future we want based on the knowledge of the past, based on the knowledge of all the secret documents, and what can we, each of us, do to make it a better future? Declassify reality. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Is that it? <laughs> okay, no, it's good. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to say. It would be a great start. Um, I think that uh, built around your question yeah. is the issue of what kind of government are we actually in in the United States now? It is not a government of, by, and for the people that pretends to be a government of, by, and for the people. And behind the pretense is massive manipulation of this whole 335 million uh, person country that is a leader in the planet and has been since World War II because we helped prevail against uh, Germany, Hitler, and how many emergences of information that may not be considered absolute historical fact the way it's presented, but from my point of view is true, that when I was told that Hitler's obsession with the blonde, blue eyes taking over the planet was because World War II, this is a quote, 
World War II was an extraterrestrial war fought through human bodies. And I personally think it is one of the most important sentences given to me in the last 43 years because I think I can say to you tonight that I am now convinced that extraterrestrials have been manipulating human history in a huge variety of complex ways. And that leads to the question that haunts me today on this very date. What is it that the extraterrestrial civilizations actually want from planet Earth? We are the product of everything I know of manipulation of DNA and already evolving primates. We are the current model. And from abductions and collection of sperm and collection of eggs, the ability to manipulate human minds. We do not have a clear truth on what the agenda is of all the different beings that are here. On the other hand, today I try to present what I think is also a truth, and both exist, and this is how complicated it all is, that there are a tall, tall white species and a Nordic species that have a vested interest in this planet and maybe us and that they have collaboration with our government and probably with others. But where I am right now in April of 2023 is if this whole room and the whole planet is not told the truth soon, then we are operating as a blind extension of multiple power bases on this planet in which nationhood and the politics of nationhood are a game. And it's a game that they know how to control because the only thing that seems to be truly transparent is that money and power are really the only things running this whole world now. Mm -hmm. And that it doesn't really matter what is happening to humanity when I think it should be the other way around. How do we ever change money dominating everything back to agape love for each other, which is not a valentine, I think it is a truth. Well, that's why we're here today. And thank you, Linda Moulton Howe, for being here on the panel. Earthfiles, earthfiles.com, or youtube.com, that's earthfiles. But we'll take questions maybe after, because, but thanks so much. Michael, I know forbidden archaeology, your work continues. What, what, what's your solutions to the future and the past and the present? If that's not too much. Okay. Well, just first of all, I'd like to say I've learned uh, something from everybody on the stage here and from many of you who I had a chance to talk to over the past couple of days. Um, one thing we have to understand is that the powers that be are recruiting people from a young age, yeah. just like 
college uh, football coaches that go to high schools and try to scope out who's there. I remember when I was going to high school in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, because I come from a, a family that has a background in intelligence and stuff like that, I was recruited. I didn't go, I didn't, I didn't sign the contract, but, and friends of mine were recruited to go into science because all these government agencies, they have programs for interning students, the brightest ones. So this movement has to be able to recruit people also. That's coming together, yeah. What, anything coming up for you? Any projects or books that you're working on? Oh, I'm working on a follow-up book to Forbidden Archaeology. It's called uh, Extreme Human Antiquity. I hope it will be out this year. Mm -hmm. Great. Great. And what, what, what do you cover in that book? I'm just curious. Well, people would ask me, have any new cases come to your attention since you published that original book, which has become a classic uh, forbidden archaeology? Yeah, where you found old computer parts and things in ancient, like, the past, or something. You found a lot of interesting things. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so what did you find? follow-up book to that. It's the, the manuscript is completed, but getting pictures of a, a lot of things is something that's What's one thing you found that was inconsistent with what we know of history? Um, well, a thousand things or more. Well, just give yeah. us one. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the best. Okay. Robert Schock was talking about the Eocene. I love the Eocene, too. You might be than me about it. But there are some interesting things that have been discovered in formations that modern geologists regard as Eocene. And one case that I talked about in Forbidden Archaeology and that I learned more about in subsequent years was the California gold mine discoveries, where in the 19th century miners came to California to get gold and places like Table Mountain in Tuolumne County and the Sierra Nevada Mountains. And digging in, into these Eocene formations, they found human bones, human artifacts, obsidian spear points. And obsidian is very difficult to work with. You have to be very intelligent to do it because it's a very brittle kind of volcanic material. So, these discoveries came to the attention of Dr. J.D. Whitney, who was the chief government geologist of California. He went out to the sites, investigated them, made some discoveries of his own, put the collection in, the, in a museum in California. And today the collection is in the Phoebe Hearst Museum of Natural History of anthropology, actually, at the University of California at Berkeley. And these things aren't shown to the public, not because they think, or at least I, I, I don't think they think they're suppressing true evidence, which, if known, would cause people to disbelieve in their theories, 
Rather, they just think they're being responsible scientists. Right. That's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. They're, they're, it's really an act of suppression. But thank you, Michael. Your website, um, michaelprimo.com. Robert Grant, thanks for coming this way. What do you feel your ultimate mission is here um, to, to deliver? Well, oh, I was talking to Robert. But no, I can talk to you too. Um, what's your. Oh, oh, I, I was asking him. But if you, if you want to answer, you can. I, I just want to say, Robert, when you were mentioning all these numbers, the two that really stood out for me were 432,000 and 864,000. Because some of the speakers here have been talking about time cycles, bigger ones than we're familiar with today. Um, the people in ancient India had a system of cycles called yugas. And one of them is 432,000 years, and the other is 864,000 years. Probably I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. So I think, yeah, I think there was a worldwide civilization that had knowledge of these cycles, and that's why you see these similar numbers turning up in all of them. Well, and it makes you wonder, too, because the mile, where does the mile come from? The sun's diameter is 864,000 miles. It means its radius is 432,000 miles. And the Euler number was only discovered in, by Charles Napier in the 18th century. And uh, yet, if you calculate using 864 as the diameter of the sun, and if you look up on Google right now, what is the diameter of sun in miles? It's the Euler number times one million. That's the circumference of the sun. It's exactly 2.718 million miles. Could I ask you guys a question? Mm -hmm. um, I've had a really wonderful opportunity to be at the University of Southern California with some physicists. They, they haven't published yet, but the whole issue was that we are in a holographic universe and they are getting ready with how do they announce this? Because if we're in a holographic universe, it must be being projected from another dimension or another universe. Yeah, correct. And if it is projected, would that explain the repetition of these magic numbers? Yes. Indeed it does and so much more too. So you asked my life's mission. Yeah, exactly. I, I like the, I take solace in the quote by Alan Watts. Man only suffers because he takes too seriously what the gods made for fun. That's actually pretty good. <laughs> and I think my mission, one of my missions, is to personally myself to wake up from the illusion. It's not about blame. It's not about someone else. It's when I first started to realize that the things I was judging were the things I was attracting. Mm -hmm. And those things that I kept attracting over and over again only stopped when I stopped judging them. And we all do this. The things we don't like about ourselves, we find fault in everyone else because those are the things we don't like about ourselves. This is called narcissistic self-projection. And the truth is that we're perfect just as we are. 
I used to spend my life seeking perfection. I was the medical aesthetics king of the world. I launched Botox. I launched Juvederm. Those are my products. And it's kind of funny now because I spent my whole life seeking perfection rather than just seeing it. And I used to think that my role was to help people to realize their ideal. Realize your ideal as in a possessive context. Whatever your ideal is that you conceptualize, you can realize. And now I realize that the truth is realize you're as in you are already ideal. But can you find perfection in numbers? Not to be personal or anything like that? Yeah. <laughs> Just what I ask. No. There's a point where you stop looking at the decimal extension, I guess. But what it did for me, what it did for me, I, I don't think of this as a, if there is a holograph that we're talking about, I would say I call it the U inverse. And actually, you have a number. It's an energetic light signature. It found, forms the foundation of your DNA. And the experience that we all experience, and you are a prime number, and that number that is prime will have a 1 over X version. So just take and divide the number 1 by that number, whatever your number is, and it's your birthday. I believe it's your numerological birthday. It is actually your name in Gematria and the location of your birth and the time of your birth. And this is why gene keys works and this is why numerology works. And actually that forms your energetic signature. And that number taken in its inverse form becomes your life experience. And it has a period of cyclicality that repeats over and over and over again until you find your golden ratio through forgiveness and love. And isn't it ironic that if it is a holographic universe, it means it's cosmic reality that is classified and who is projecting this universe Maybe and what us. is their objectives. And we are still at that level. We are denied the truth of the reality that's, of why this would but be that's a our challenge. Game. If it was too easy, like Robert said, you would be out of a job, Linda. <laughs> <laughs> You're here pushing the envelope like a boulder up the hill. The I would like the truth. The whole truth. It's coming. It's coming. You know, they Thank say, you. the macrobiotics say, the bigger the front, the bigger the back. So the bigger the lie, the most incredible truth that we have waiting for us. That's my feeling. Let me just turn to this other side. I think we're good over here. Right? <laughs> Thank you. So, Robert, are we really going to be hit by a solar flare and be wiped out? That's been my question all night. Um, yes. Yes. No. No, no. I mean this seriously because. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously, we will be. It's a matter of time. We don't know when. Uh, something I have certainly learned from geology is that these cycles, these cycles repeat, they've occurred before, they will occur again, there's really no stopping it. And, and that's what answer to your question. And this ties in with the other question you were asking, where do I see myself, etc. I think we need to look at the evidence, we need to look at it um, carefully, we can't ignore it. We can't just wish it away, and this is one thing we can't wish away. All the evidence is that, yes, we will be hit again, and we should prepare. We should learn from the past. We should learn from the ancients. They have so much to give us, so much 
that we can um, learn from the past and apply that to ourselves in the current context, in this present moment, and going into the future. But we were given some, those past people were given warnings. Of, yeah, they I mean, were giving warnings so and whatnot. What warnings should we look for? They, well, that's something that we have to learn. And that, for instance, and I'll give a specific example. Yeah. I mentioned the Rongo Rongo text, which may in fact give information as to exactly what are the precursor signs, if we can learn, study it, really learn it, delve into it, what are the precursor signs uh, before something hits. Because we're not going to book? stop it. Are you going to write, a, can you tell us in, in that book? Can you I'm working on it now. Okay. Yes, in fact, this is one of the projects I'm working on, seriously. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I think we have a lot to learn and we have to be able to face it. And what I've tried to do in my own um, research, academic, scientific career is to really look at all the evidence, not wish away or ignore certain evidence. I mean, there's all kinds of classic examples in the sciences where evidence that went away, went against the grain, went against the conventional point of view, it was just dismissed. It was, you know, the cliches uh, swept under the rug or tossed away, et cetera, et cetera. I felt that when I first was working on ancient civilizations, my initial work on the Sphinx, people wanted to dismiss it. Oh, you know, it's an anomaly. We'll just ignore it. No, we can't ignore anomalies. We cannot ignore anomalies because sometimes it's anomalies that tell us more than anything else, and that's the threads we need to follow up on. So. Thank you for being here, Robert Shaw. You're right. Um, Dr. J.J. Hurtock, your, your work has been so valuable in uplifting people, giving them hope, seeing the higher vision. How can we inspire people that, yeah, despite the flares that may be coming, how do we live for a greater future? Well, this is a great movement. These, we, we represent multiple disclosure conferences, and I look forward to working with all of our speakers, all of you. We're at a tremendous time. We are the avant-garde. We must be courageous. We must be truthful. We must be honest. We must never lose positive energy. I would like to simply say one of my favorite mantras is from Japan, may peace prevail on earth and in the heavens. May this peace prevail in our hearts, without which all of this other stacks about this and volumes about that doesn't move humanity an inch. It's the greater love of the divine and human partnership. That's the glory. That's the kingdom. That's the cosmic Christ at work. May we be blessed. Nice. Do you want to lead us in a peace prevail on earth, or is it too late for that? Uh, it might be a little late. But <laughs> it's I, never I, too late for peace on earth. <laughs> no, I just want to say that uh, one of the signs may be uh, the coming of cosmic intelligence in the heavens who know about what's going to take place on this planet or in this area. And I think they've been giving us information and help for the last, you know, many years to grow us so we can be cosmic citizens with them together and I think that that is really what's going on right now I think many people feel that and recognize that so that's why they're going to the sacred areas like Egypt and I did want to put a plug in not only for Robert Schock's tours but for Alan and Joan of Angels and Neil and our tour also coming up in September September 6th you can sign up in the back um, G Egypt um, what is it? Egyptretreat.com um, is that the name of it? 
Well, there's a postcard in back. It's a long day. <laughs> anyway, so it's going to be a great tour. Um, just as good as... Oh, EgyptAscensionRetreat.com. Yes, thank you. That's it. So anyway, but we need to go, you know, these places, even if we do it mentally, because we don't always have to physically go there. For some, it might be very difficult. But to send energy and to connect with our cosmic counterparts. And I believe even on higher levels, because we believe we're going beyond not only the third, the fifth, that the reason you can do past and present simultaneously with these aliens is because you're working in the eighth dimension. That's the work that we were looking at with Elizabeth Rauscher. The eighth dimension will put you, like Vivian was saying today, that you can put aspects of yourself into these other spaces and manifest or not manifest, depending on what's needed. Anyway, lots to do. We're all part of the cosmic new dimension that's growing, and I think there is ongoing life. If we're talking about Extinctions in the past, we're still here, we're going to be here, the cosmic dimensions are here to make sure we continue. And you're speaking tomorrow what time? Uh, about 2 o'clock, 2.15, thanks. Right, and I do think to conclude that yes, we need to look to the past but also to possibly the ETs making contact is the key I got there. But that is going to take us off this cycle of human destruction and denial. If we can really open our minds and brains, it's in the book, to make contact, then maybe we can create a new species of human beings and a higher consciousness that will bring us into truly a fifth dimensional reality of an awakened consciousness. Thank you so much. I'm Alan Steinfeld.